speaking just a tad bit longer, please do so. And either way, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 119. This morning we want to read verses 137 to 134. Should be on about page 515, 516 if you'd like to use a Bible from the church. Just a quick uh, medical service announcement beforehand, and that is if the screen to your left seems blurry, uh, to my left seems blurry, you might seek immediate medical attention. I'm not sure what's going on with that, but uh, we'll see if we can get it adjusted. It's probably just run its, its, its length of time, so, but we'll see. This is God's word for us, Psalm 119, beginning at verse 137. And here's what God says. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried. And your servant loves it. I am, dis- I am small and despised. Yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever. And your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out. But your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There is no word like your word. Your word is true forever. Your word is righteous, as we've just seen. Now, Father, help us in these moments together May we continue our worship as we look at your word. May you, by your spirit, teach us. And may we not just come away with this from our time together knowing a a few things. But Father, may your word transform us. So that the very righteousness spoken of here would become an even more practical, demonstrated reality in our own hearts and lives. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 119 underscores, teaches us something of the functional and practical value of God's Word in the life of a follower of Christ. We're making our way through these 176 verses. Eight verses at a time. That's just the natural structure of Psalm 119. It's comprised of 22 eight-verse units. Each unit uh, plays off of uh, one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so A through Z, if you would, here is something of the functional and practical value of God's Word. We are this morning in the 18th unit, so we're almost... Done. And the, 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 the Hebrew uh, letter for this unit is, is, is also the same Hebrew letter that 
of the word Hebrew word for righteous or righteousness. And boy, the psalmist was waiting to get to this one. This eight-verse unit is packed full of, it's loaded with, uh, with the term righteous and righteousness. And so naturally then, the dominant theme in this unit is righteousness. It's the first term and the last term, and it's used all throughout these eight verses. And yet as we think about this theme of righteousness, the psalmist divides these eight verses into four verses apiece. And I think we see something of a, what I would call um, an orientation around righteousness. The first four verses weigh in primarily on righteousness from, from, from God's angle. God and His righteousness. And then the second four verses speak of righteousness from the psalmist's angle. Uh, the psalmist's perspective. And so there's... The two points that I want us to look at is the Lord and His righteousness. That's the first four verses. And then the Lord's people and His righteousness, the second four verses. Verse 137 begins as it orients us to the Lord and His righteousness. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Psalmist is saying something very important and profound to us this morning about righteousness. God is intrinsically righteous. It is not simply a thing He does. It is the essence of who and what He is. There there is not a standard of righteousness that is outside of God that He Uh, strives to aim for. No, He is that standard Himself. He is the standard for, and when I use the word righteousness and righteous, there's really uh, several overlapping terms and words that we could think about. In addition to righteousness, there's equity, there's justice, there's integrity. These, these all dovetail and interact with, with this notion of righteousness. We, and by even today's um, terms, we, we banter around the concept of right and wrong, and good and bad, and pure and evil, and holy and wicked. These, these are all, again, clusters of terms that, that help us to think about this notion of righteousness. In the Hebrew language, the language that the psalmist is writing in, there was a, in that culture, there was a really important picture, illustration of righteousness that I think could help us to grasp a part of what we're trying to describe and talk about. A picture of righteousness was, is taken from the, the world of the marketplace. You would go to the market to buy a, a measure or a unit of grain or some sort of commodity, and, and, and you would go up to the merchant, and then he would, he would uh, use a, a two-tray scale and he would, on the, on the one tray, on the one side, he would pour the grain or whatever the commodity is into that side of the scale. Then he would add a, a corresponding weight 
on the other scale and place it on the, on the other side of the, the other tray. And, and then the merchant would then add or remove the grain until the scales were balanced. And when they were balanced, they would call that balanced measurement righteous. When both sides were perfect in perfect conformity to each other. Well, who or what is the standard of righteousness? God is the standard of righteousness. Righteousness is not a mere social construct that's uh, adaptable, adaptable and amendable by, by, by political power. In fact, I would suggest to you uh, that when you take God out of the discussion of a standard of righteousness, all that is left is raw political power. Whoever's got the biggest muscle gets to define what they see as righteous or just or equitable or or. or, or fair or true or good or beautiful. But righteousness is not a social construct. Righteousness is is the very essence of who and what God is. God uh, is, is, is not righteous because He always keeps some external standard No, He is that standard, and therefore whatever He does is by definition righteousness. He is incapable of doing anything other than righteousness. And and so God is the standard in His perfect, infinite, eternal righteousness. God is that standard by which everyone... Everything, every action, every thought, every structure, every system, every arrangement in a culture is measured by God Himself and His righteousness. He is righteous. He does righteous. He speaks righteous. It's all He knows how to do because it's just a flow out of the essence of who and what He is. Righteousness is a really um, popular topic to think about today in our day and age. And yet what's so ironic is that while righteousness is such an important matter to our culture today, We don't seem to want to put God in the middle of that conversation concerning righteousness. I mean, on the one hand, righteousness and the concept of righteousness intrigues us. And I don't think it can but but intrigue us because we are made in the image of God who is righteousness. And whatever vestiges of being made in the image of God that's still left in our hearts... There's something that intrigues us and pulls us toward a, a thought about righteousness. So when we hear righteousness in the most generic and, and, and universal sense, we, there's something in our hearts to say, yeah, that's, there's something to that. And yet while righteousness generically intrigues us, there's something that we find repulsive about righteousness as well. For we are not merely made in the image of God. We are 
creatures of, who have rebelled against a righteous God. And the reason why then we don't want to seek God concerning a standard of righteousness is because, guess what? If we were to seek God and His righteousness, there's narrow one of us this morning here in this room. There's narrow one of us on the face of this earth that would not be indicted. Paul says in Romans 3, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Part of falling short of God's glory is that we have, we have all come up short in terms of measuring up to the standard of righteousness. In fact, the very imagery of the marketplace that I've described to you that was common in, in that culture Daniel deploys that in his conversation with Nebuchadnezzar, where he says to Nebuchadnezzar, you have been weighed in the balances, and you have been found wanting. Well, we could lump ourselves into that picture. All of humanity, we're not just picking on Nebuchadnezzar. This is the plight of humanity. God is righteous. We are not. God is the standard of righteousness. We don't make it up. It goes on to say in verse 138, You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. God is His own standard and, and, and of what righteousness consists of, and He is always, and His Word is always true and faithful to that standard. You can count on two things then. You can count on God to be righteous, and you can count on God to be always faithful to what He is in His righteousness. He is utterly and continually reliable and dependable in His righteousness. And if we seek to discover this notion of righteousness as to who He is as righteous and therefore how the world is to, is to exist in righteousness, then it is His Word that we would seek. And I think that's what the psalmist is getting at. He in fact, it's a, it, seeking God's word to discover the righteousness of God is, in verse 139, my zeal consumes me. He is consumed with a, a quest to discover the righteous God who has revealed himself in his word. And yet, and yet what adds the, the exhaustion to that search is he says in the second part of verse 139, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Psalmist is exhausted. I think that's what he's getting at by zeal consuming him. There's, he's in, there's a sense of intense angst and grief. He's consumed. He's even, if you would, tormented because there is a, because as he's discovering what God's word reveals about righteousness, what he's also discovering is that there is a wholesale ignorance of, a wholesale rejection of the righteousness of God's testimonies. Well, Joe, we've got some big problems in the world today to sort out. We've got poverty. We've got homelessness. 
We've got injustices of all sorts. Seems like those ought to be the things that consume us. Those ought to be the things whose zeal consumes us. Why is it that the psalmist is fixated? Why is it he is grieved and tormented? All because people don't know and live by the righteous laws of God when we've got deep problems in the world today. I think the psalmist could help us connect the dots. The reasons we have deep problems in the world today. The reasons there are critters such as poverty and homelessness and injustices of all sorts. There is a cause and effect here. There is a symptom and there is a root. The societal ills that, that we can observe and, and make note of, that, that, that even burdens and breaks our hearts today, that, that shouldn't be things that we, are, that we could care less about, that we are impervious to, nonetheless... The reason there are those things today is because we are living in a universe that is in rebellion to a righteous God. We are living in a universe uh, that, 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 it, that thinks it's wise enough, it's smart enough to sort out its own categories of righteousness without seeking the God who is himself the standard of righteousness. He says in verse 140, uh, um, your promise is well tried. God's righteousness and the revelation of God's word of righteousness is it's been tested and tried and it's been proven. Look, 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 look. There, there is no cultural challenge today. There is no level of injustice. There is no degree of wrong. There is no amount of societal ill that could not be successfully dealt with by simply turning to our righteous God and seeking wisdom from His righteous word. Now, that's my political campaign. No, I'm, I say that to say, you, say you, you and I are going to buy promises. Our culture is catechizing us on where to find truth and goodness and beauty and righteousness and justice. And our culture is going to say, psst, psst, it's over here. Come here. To which we would call our hearts out as they're being allured and enticed to alternative sources of wisdom and righteousness. We would say there's only been one word that's been tried and true. There's only been one word that is eternal. It comes down to who or what will govern us. And for followers of Christ, who or what ought to govern us is a simple statement. Jesus is Lord. We're not throwing in with any other promises. Because He alone is the one who is the standard of righteousness. He alone is righteous. His word alone is the revelation of righteousness. Then He shifts in the second four verses, whereas primarily the first four verses have been about the Lord and His righteousness. The, these, these next Verses are, are a bit more um, 
disclosing of something of what's percolating in the psalmist's heart. We've already seen some of that already in the first four verses, but, but now it's more weighted on uh, the psalmist and the Lord's righteousness, to which I would lump in there us, we, the Lord's people, and His righteousness. So the shift is from the, the, the angle of the righteousness from God's angle to righteousness from our angle trying to live out under the righteousness of God. And, and uh, boy, there's a, there, there's, it starts in a very bleak uh, admission here. If we get that God alone is the standard of righteousness, and we will be the people who would strive to live according to God's righteousness on this earth at this present moment, then guess what? Verse 141, I am small and despised. I think he's probably in this context not so much simply airing out his own perceived notion of who and what he is, although it could be included in that. I would suggest to you that the the psalmist is acknowledging how he is perceived by the people in the culture in which he lives in. Again, I keep thinking this is Daniel. This is, a, this is an autobiographical psalm of Daniel. And certainly, certainly we know that he was um, a faithful follower of the Lord in, in, in an unfaithful land. So, so he is probably, because of his views upon the Lord as righteous and the Lord's word as a revelation of righteousness, guess what? He is written off as a nut job by the culture in which he lives in. He is... (laughs) There is that Daniel. (laughs) There he goes again about God and righteous and God's word, righteousness. and (sighs) What a knucklehead. That's probably how he is esteemed by the culture in which he is living. The psalmist psalmist is, 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 is not willing to reconfigure the standard of righteousness just to find cultural acceptance. If you and I declaring our allegiance to God and His righteousness causes us to be seen as insignificant and to be, and, and to be despised by the culture, let's not look for a fight, but let's take it how it is. Let's be faithful to the Lord. Let's not live to the applause of this culture. Let's live in such a way that when we die, the Lord rises and stands and welcomes us into His presence. Psalmist is seen as nothing. He is of no account. He is rejected. He is written off precisely because of His peculiar views, His out-of-step out-of-touch views concerning God as righteous and God's Word as the revelation of righteousness. Oh, we could pray and we should pray that the Lord would give us favor in the culture that we live in. You, you see that in the Scriptures sometimes, that the Lord gives favor to His people, and, and, and a, that favor that the Lord gives to His people is that the, the people in, the, in that culture would, uh, 
would treat God's people a certain way and even, even give serious consideration to what God's people would say about God's righteousness. The, oh, that God would give us favor in this day and age. But, 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 but we must not be a people who will sell out to the standards of God's righteousness just so that we can get a good hearing and win a good favor by this world's standards. May we be small and despised in the sight of this world. If that's what faithfulness to God's righteousness should consist of at this moment, in this season, in this day and age. The wisdom of the world, uh, uh, the, that, that which is currently fashionable to decipher uh, what is it that ails us. The, the highfalutin modern insights offered as real sustainable solutions. Really offer no room or leave no room for the manifold wisdom of God in His righteousness. But the psalmist says, though I'm regarded as small or insignificant and despised, verse second part of verse 41, I have not forgotten your precepts. They've forgotten them, obviously. <laughs> and what they haven't forgotten, they've remembered but rejected. And then he spills over into verse 142, where he says, Your righteousness is righteous forever. And your law is true. Currently, it seems like that's a viewpoint that is put in the category of insignificant and despised. It is what it is. We can't control that. But what we can control is where will our heart land? Verse 143, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. There's, there is no expiration date on God's righteous word. And that lands the psalmist in trouble. He's small and despised, and, and, and that creates a sense of even turmoil and havoc in his own heart, trouble and anguish have found him out. I am insignificant. I am despised. I am in trouble. I am in anguish. But he has no chip on his shoulder. Do you see that? Sometimes we love being in the category of small and despised because it seems like give us a reason to... to care for that little chip on our shoulder. There's no chip on his shoulder. He has no angry axe to grind. He has no gloomy cloud hanging over his head. This is our Father's world. He is righteous, and he is bringing to pass whatever he has ordained, and he is going to land this world in a restored new heaven and earth exactly on schedule. And what that means is, while trouble and anguish have found us out for the season, for this season, our hearts have found the source of delight. God's Word. 
I mean, are, are we cool with that? Are we cool with being small and despised? Are we cool with struggling through a, 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 a zealous consumption over God's law being forgotten? Are we okay with the trouble and anguish that, came, that comes from standing out as oddballs? Are we okay with all of that? Because God's Word is not simply righteous. It is haplifying. It creates joy in our hearts. You see, what a wonderful opportunity God's people have to be a true witness bearer to the sufficiency of God's mercies and grace in Christ Jesus. In that we can be a people right here, right now. And this can even be reflected in how we post on Facebook or or how we tweet on Twitter or how we... Picture ourselves on Instagram that we, we can be a people. This is a supernatural, mysterious thing. We can be a people who are content in the midst of contempt. Yes, it breaks our hearts to see the world operate in unrighteousness. Yes, it should and must. And yes, we would pray and work to alleviate these layers of unrighteousness. But it has to start with the development of our own character and virtue. And a part of our own character and virtue is learning how to be a delightful people through the agency of God's Word, by the power of the Spirit, because of what Christ has done for us already. And it's out of that, as happy people, we can concern ourselves with structures and systems and thoughts and actions pertaining to righteousness and unrighteousness. And it concludes in 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Hasn't he said that already? Yeah, but ain't you apt to forget that pretty soon? Or maybe I should just speak of myself. That's okay. We are apt to forget because everything around us suggests that's not the case. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Everything God reveals in His Word pertains to righteousness. And what He prays, give me understanding. Give me discernment that I might live. Part of what he might be saying to us is, give me understanding that I might live, is certainly all of God's Word speaks of and points to the righteousness of God. But there's a particular subject matter in God's Word that is uber pertinent to righteousness. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then here's what he says about this gospel, in it, in what? In the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
to faith. Give me understanding, Lord, that I might live. How is it that your gospel reveals the righteousness of God? Here's how the quick and skinny version of it is, is that God is righteous and we are not. And yet God in his mercy and love in a way that nevertheless upholds his righteous standard has supplied a way whereby people like you and I, unrighteous people natively, could could be received into God's warm, righteous presence and live to tell about it. And he did this by dispatching his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect, righteous life, fulfilled God's law flawlessly in every nook and cranny. And this Jesus went to the cross, and there at the cross, he took the sins of people like you and I. He took our boatloads of unrighteousness, and he bore up under that curse. He bore up under the penalty of our native unrighteousness, because that shows us not only the depths of God's love, but exactly how serious God is about righteousness. He is not about to let the crimes of unrighteous people such as us go unpunished. That would be an unrighteous God. I got my summons yesterday for jury duty. I've always wanted to go jury, go, go do jury duty. Diane's been summoned like seven times, and she hates it every time. I just like, please pick me, pick me, pick me. Well, they finally picked me. I can't, can't wait. But because I, I get to see the inner workings, perhaps, of a court proceeding, justice ought to be a concern there. Well, if the judge decides uh, right and left that go- guilty people uh, go free, that would be called an unrighteous judge. Well, God is not unrighteous. And yet, how does he let people like you and I be free from the penalty of our sins? He upheld his righteousness in the demonstration of his love in that he punished his son in our place. Righteousness upheld, love displayed. And if you're here this morning and you've never turned to Christ and never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your unrighteousness has cut you off and condemned you before a holy God. But God has made a way, a righteous way, and that righteous way is found in the righteous one, Jesus. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Pray to God to give you that understanding of who Christ is and what he has done that you may live. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. Your word is true. Your word is righteous. And Father, our prayer is that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be those people who seek you, who seek your kingdom and all of its righteousness. Father, may may that be a burden, a passion, a desire of our hearts. May we know the joy of the Holy Spirit because of the very righteousness of Christ that has been given to us through faith. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.